Amen, amen. Hey, if you would get a Bible in front of you, Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians 6, and um, as we continue our walk through the book of Ephesians, and uh, as you turn there, let me remind you of something. Tomorrow's Monday. Tomorrow's Monday. We all agree with that? That means for many of you in the room, for a large majority of you in the room, the alarm clock will probably go off, and you have a Monday routine that you'll just jump into. Uh, for some of us, uh, for a lot of us, it'll be uh, getting ready for another day of work, whether that means a uniform on, a work badge grabbed, and, and, and off to the warehouse, punching the clock, off to the office. For, for some of you, it might just mean pouring a cup of coffee and pulling up and logging in to a computer. But, but for many of us in the room, Monday will bring another week of work. Amen, amen. We ready for another week of work? Work, 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 work is part of all of our lives. Work is part of all of our lives. Everyone in the room, work is part of all of our lives. Even if your, your work in a week doesn't uh, uh, allow you to, to, to make a paycheck, I told Eric on the couch lesson, I said, imagine if you got paid hourly for all that you do as a mom. Moms, right? Huh? Imagine if you got paid hourly for that. Work is part of all of our lives, even if you don't have a paycheck. And, 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 and work looks different for all of us in the room. Work looks different in different seasons of life, but it's part of the goodness of how God has created uh, his world to work. Now, my question for us as we think about Monday, or maybe for some of you like Monday morning, like I'm, I'm clocking in tonight. My question for us as it relates to work is this, how does the gospel shape the way we work? How, how does the gospel go with you to work? And when I ask that question, I'm, I'm not necessarily asking how you're doing at sharing the gospel at work, as important as that is, and as faithful to that as we should be, but what instead I'm asking is how does the fact that you have been blood-bought by the shed blood of a Savior, that you are signed, sealed, and delivered, that your inheritance is laid up in heaven, and that you have all that you can possibly have in the riches of the glory of the inheritance in Christ, how does that affect the way your alarm goes off tomorrow? tomorrow morning and you walk into your workplace because I'm going to argue today that it should and I'm going to argue today that a Christian that that who is a follower of Jesus should be demonstrably different in the workplace than everyone else who's with me now my question is now my question hold on hold on are are we um, this passage today is, is, is a goldmine for us as we think about the workers that we are. Now, let me, let me just remind us, and what I've tried to do every single week of this series, the, the way the book of Ephesians is structured, right? We spent the first half of this letter just, we, we called the first half just resting in Christ. It is the riches of all that is ours and the gospel of Jesus. Hardly any commands all these gospel truths that are just, here is what is true of us if we are in Christ. You get to chapter 4, you come to the back half of the letter, and Paul is laying before us an argument that all of that doctrinal richness that we looked at in the first half of the letter, it should deeply impact now the way we practically live out our lives. We've seen that over the last few weeks. He's like, this addresses the way we think about ourselves as husbands and wives. 
This impacts the way that we understand what it means to be a mom and dad and what it means to be a son and daughter. And now today I'm going to argue that the gospel is to impact what it looks like for us as workers. The gospel has HR implications, y'all. The gospel impacts what Alistair Begg calls the industrial relationships. How so? How does it do that? How is it to do that? Now, I want you to look in the word, and I want you to, we're going to pick it up here in Ephesians 6, verse 5. And um, if, if you can help me out here, some, all of you together, what's the first word of Ephesians 6, verse 5? Bond servants. Bond servants. Your Bible probably has a footnote in it. My footnote says, uh, or slaves. Bond servants or, or slaves. Now, uh, that first word means we, we have to deal with something. And if you're good students of the Bible, I've just, I've just made an argument in the introduction of a sermon that I'm going to take today's passage and I'm going to apply it to our industrial relationships, to our work lives. And then the first word you see when we jump in there is bond servants or slaves. And so you need to be asking as a good Bible student, how is he going to draw a direct line to what Paul is addressing, addressing in that day to those people? And how does that apply to this day and us people? And so let me, let me kind of put a wide angle lens to start because we gotta, uh, we gotta talk about this whole idea of bond service in general before we can get to the specifics of the five verses uh, that we are going to look at today. And I got to kind of go fast through this. And so uh, stay with me here. Uh, but the first thing that this word leads us to ask is this, is what is this first century Roman Empire bond service? What, what is the context in which Paul is writing to these people? When he addresses bond servants or slaves in that day, who is he addressing? And what did that bond service look like? Uh, a guy named Gavin Ortland, he's, he's done some writing on this, and there's a lot of writing out, out there on this, uh, but I just want to read an extended quote of his, if I can, to kind of help us set the context of this. And he writes, when we read verses like Ephesians 6.5, Colossians 3.22, and 1 Peter 2.18, we hear the common English translation slave in light of our own historical context. Uh, we typically think of race-based chattel slavery in which the slave is the property of the master and lacks any legal rights. This kind of slavery is manifestly among the most despicable institutions ever to disgrace human civilization. Let me read that again. This kind of slavery is manifestly among the most despicable institutions ever to disgrace human civilization. It is not, however, what is in view in these texts. The Greek word doulos can be translated slave or sometimes servant or bondservant and often referred to people who had a surprising level of legal and social status in the first century Greco-Roman world. Most were not slaves from their birth or for their whole life or because of their race, for instance. The Roman jurist Gaius claimed that most slaves were prisoners of war who actually would have been slaughtered if not made slaves. To be clear, 
Let me quote Gavin Ortland in this, and I want to make sure that's as clear from my mouth as it is from his here. To be clear, slavery in any sense perverts God's created intention for human beings. And there are some harsh passages we have to deal with, but there's a vast difference between the deplorable wickedness we see in a film like 12 Years a Slave and say what Paul is addressing in the first century Ephesian church. And so, so what was this first century Roman Empire bond service? Uh, Ortland mentioned it many times. You're dealing with prisoners of war, as he says, who would have been uh, slaughtered if not uh, uh, brought into a relationship of bond service. Uh, many times you were dealing with people who are in great indebtedness to someone else who came and then would work under this person and working under this debt. And so it's important that we note as you study this in the Roman Empire at the time, there were doctors, there were lawyers, there were even politicians in bond service. So many opportunities there. I won't take the bait. And so I, I, I want to describe a bit of that first century bond service without defending that first century bond service. And, and that leads me to this kind of second thing we got to talk about before we get into the specifics. So, so does the Bible, does the Bible support or condone this kind of first century bond service? Does the Bible support it or condone this kind of first century bond service? I mean, Paul is writing to them. Does the Bible support it? The answer to that is an emphatic no. See, what Paul is doing here is he's speaking to Christians within the Christian community on how the gospel was to impact them at a personal level. Bond servants, let me tell you how the gospel comes to bear on you personally as you live within this societal reality that was true of the culture in that time. He's also going to say, those of you over bond servants, let me tell you how the gospel is to impact that reality in your life. And so Paul is interested here in this passage, applying the gospel to where these people were personally, and he's not interested in this passage, taking this issue on from a societal level as a whole. So now, how do we take a passage like this to those people in that day and apply it to us as us people in this day who do not live in a first century Roman Empire bondservant reality. Uh, the answer to that, and I've already quoted the way Alistair Begg talks about this, he talks about this in the, in the nature of what Paul is doing here is he's instructing people how the gospel comes to bear on industrial relationships. How does the gospel come to bear on us who work under the authority of other people? And how does the gospel come to bear on us who have positions of authority over other people? We get that kind of instruction today because there are probably many, many hard things about all of our work lives here but you ought, do you want to often know what makes work the hardest? People. You're like, hey amen. I have so many people hard to work with. Well, guess what? Hold on. You're a people. And I'm a people. 
And you can be hard to lead. And you can be totally jacked up in how you're leading others. That's where the gospel comes to bear in this. Anyone need this passage today? Let's pray and ask God's help. Father, we do need your help. Lord, let the gospel come to bear on our life, in our hearts, in our homes, in our workplaces. We ask you for help in this, in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians 6, verse 5. Bond servants. What's the next word? Obey your earthly masters. And then he tells them how, with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart. And then here's a big statement. As you would who? As you would Christ. Bond servants, obey. There's the command. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. It's how it's to be obeyed. With a sincere heart, as you would Christ. And so first thing I want us to see is when under authority at work, when under authority at work, I will obey with a heart to serve God and seek my reward from God. When under authority at work, I will obey some of us right now, and just hearing that word, you're like, ah, but you don't know the boss I have. You don't know what an unintelligent person he can be at times, or she can be at times. But I want you to see something right away in verse 5. When the authority that God has put over us, and like, can we just trust in the sovereignty of God, that his hand has been part of the authority that is over of us in our industrial relationships? How are we to carry out what has been given to us when that authority is not asking us to sin against the Lord and not asking us to violate our conscience? When they are not asking us to sin, when they are not asking us to violate our conscience, how do we obey? How do we live that out? And then the passage says, ultimately, whether your superior you think should win boss of the year or whether you think they should win an award on the opposite end of that spectrum of the year, that ultimately the way that you live that out has to do not... not ultimately with them, but ultimately with who? Ultimately with who? With Christ. Obey as you would to Christ. Now, how? With a reverential fear? With a sincerity of heart? He goes on, verse 6, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. The way that we come under the authority that God has put in place in the industrial relationships in which we live is to follow that leadership as we would Christ with a reverential fear, with a sincerity of heart, 
and not motivated by just this eye service reality. I will be a good employee so long as my boss is watching. Not as a people pleaser. Not looking to please man, but looking to please who? And then he says in verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he, will see back, this he will receive back from his boss or from her manager or from her supervisor. What's it say? This, will, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Now, these verses give us, uh, what I want to pull out, three really important gospel-shaped applications for us who work under authority of others. And, and almost all of us in the room work under authority in some shape or realm in the industrial relationship of our life. But, but the first kind of application I want to pull out for us under authority, under this point, is this, that we're to obey authority. We're to obey authority. And as I've already said, regardless of how well you think your superiors do at their job or this or that, that God tells us that our obedience in these things is with a heart, with a sincerity of heart that is focused on obeying as we would to Christ. A second gospel-shaped application for us who are under authority is this, is that we're to be God-pleasers. I'm to be a God-pleaser. And you're to be a God-pleaser. Not just working in a way for eye service to please managers, bosses, foremen, superiors. But working in a way with a heart that desires to please God. Colossians chapter 3 says, Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Teacher, you are serving the Lord Christ. Truck driver, you're serving the Lord Christ. Customer service representative, you are serving the Lord Christ. You're like, oh, man. Sure doesn't sound like Jesus on the other end often, right? <laughs> we're to be God pleasers. Uh, when, the, when we were planting this church, uh, we didn't have offices. We didn't have a church building. We didn't have, we didn't have Jack, okay? We had the Lord and a uh, promise that he builds his church. And so the offices um, were the corner, uh, this long table at the corner of the st uh, Starbucks on the corner of Maine and Emerson. <laughs> Woohoo! Yeah, <laughs> someone's favorite Starbucks. That was the offices, and you know we set up shop at that long table, and uh, through that we got to know a lot of the regulars that would also work from Starbucks, and, and we got to know a lot of the baristas, and um, over time I began to watch. There was this uh, a young man who worked there at Starbucks, and I would watch the way he worked. 
I'd watched the way he interacted with customers. I watched the way that uh, the manager would give him instructions and how he would respond to that instruction. I watched the work ethic in which he, he carried out his responsibilities. And I, would just, I just was like, I wonder, I wonder. I think he might be a follower of Jesus. And then one Sunday, he walked into our church. And I got done preaching. I walked down to the second row. And I said, I knew it. He's like, you're a follower of Jesus, aren't you? And he's like, uh, yes. He's like, I'm confused. I said, I could tell by the way you worked. I could tell by the way you loved. And now hear me. I'm not saying that only Christians work hard. We know a lot of non-Christians who work very hard, don't we? But I'm, I am saying there was something to the way that I watched this young man work that, that there was a desire to be a God pleaser. And how that reality of barista-ing at Starbucks got lived out that I pray is true of us in any of our work settings. So for us under authority, we're to obey this authority. We're to be God-pleasers in this. And, and this third application I want to bring out for us who, who work under authority in our life is this. That we're, we're to look to God for our ultimate reward. We're to look to God for our ultimate rewards. I, I'm pulling this from verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the, from the Lord. And so, and so if, if, if this is your heart, if this is our heart, for those of us who in the industrial context in which we work, work under authority, if this Ephesians 6 is driving us in this, if the raises never come, if the promotions never show up, if the accolades never happen, understand something. One day, worker, you will stand before Jesus. And he'll have seen. If your boss never sees, he'll have seen. I, uh, when I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life, still am, um, was finishing up at Wabash, and, and uh, uh, that's an all-male institution in West Central Indiana. Who goes to an all-male college? I don't know. But was trying to figure out what I was going to do, and applied for a sales job with an indie-based company, was on a uh, final uh, interview in uh, Pennsylvania for this sales job, and uh, my, who would have been my sales partner, picked me up from the airport, and we were driving all over. And, um, and I, the way she talked about what she lived for convinced me not to take the job. She said, do you want to know what I live for? I said, yeah. Let's talk about ultimate, ultimate supremeness of what we're living for. Yeah, let's go. I live for the end-of-the-year award ceremony. And I'm like, oh, you're serious. Oh, oh, yeah. She's like, when I walk across that stage, I'm not exaggerating right now. When I walk across that stage, I mean, she's like driving the car, but she's like picturing it. And when all of those people are clapping, when the awards are coming in, 
I live for that. Listen, nothing wrong with raises, accolades, awards. In fact, I, my, my argument would be if we're living out the Christ-centered reality as employees, a lot of those things might come as byproducts, okay? Not knocking it. But if that's what you're living for, newsflash, one day you're going to retire. Or one day you're going to get fired. And they'll find someone else to do our job. But if that's what we're living for, these earthly rewards that come instead of this reality that knowing whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Let's live for that reality. And if God in his sovereignty brings all of the byproducts of raises, accolades, awards, blessings in the process of that, awesome. But one day we know whether we're fired or retired, one day we're going to stand before the Lord and we're living for his well done. Amen. Now, verse 9, there's a bit of a transition here. And so if point one was this, when under authority at work, I will obey with a heart to serve God and seek my reward from God, I want us to see that the gospel doesn't only have implications for how we come under leadership in the workplace. Gospel, or the gospel has implications for how we exert the authority that God in his sovereignty has entrusted to us. So the second point I want us to see is this. When in authority at work, I will, and the word I'm using is honor, and I'll show you why I'm using that word, I will honor those under me, knowing all of us are ultimately under God. Why do I say that? Verse 9. Masters, I want you to read the next phrase up to the comma to me. Masters what? Massive, massive countercultural statement right there. Paul is addressing Jesus followers within a Christian community in which the bondservants and the masters were sitting by each other. And he says, now masters, those of you in authority, do the same to them. Everything that I have just written to them of how they are to honor you, I give to you to say this is how the gospel informs how you're to honor them. Massive, gospel-shaped, countercultural statement. He goes on to say this, and stop your threatening. I so wish I could hear Paul's tone in that. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. Those of you in this authority, the gospel does not lead you to lead or exercise that authority in a threatening, fear-based way. The gospel instructs your heart that you are to lead with love. Masters, do the same to them. Honor them in the same way. Stop your threatening. Here's why. 
those in positions of industrial authority, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. As I read that this week, I thought of this statement. You might be higher on an org chart, but you're on equal ground at the cross. I'm not despising the higher on the org chart thing. I believe totally and wholeheartedly that God and his sovereignty allows many of us in the room to be higher on an org chart. If God has entrusted you with that, lead with love with Christ-likeness, seeking to honor those who are under, who, who, who you're stewarding under your authority, but don't ever forget something in that. You might be higher on that org chart or you're on equal ground at the foot of the cross. It's when we lose sight of that, that we lose sight of how we exercise any authority that God has entrusted to us. So this informs how the manager manages. And this informs how the boss bosses. And this informs how the foreman leads and how the owner owns. This informs how I give my kids the job of picking up the sticks in the yard. Dad, stop threatening. Lead with love. This informs the way we are to exercise any amount of authority God has entrusted to us in the industrial relationships that God has given us. We honor. We lead with love and not threaten. And we understand that we are on equal ground at the foot of the cross. The gospel must shape how I live under authority at work and or in authority at work. Now, let me just zoom back out. Let me just zoom back out a second. I hope what we're seeing in the study of Ephesians is how deeply practical these gospel principles are in our everyday life. Paul's been addressing the home. Paul's been addressing these relationships of how does authority work, under authority, in authority. Paul's been instructing how are we to uh, put off the old and put on the new. But I, but I hope what we're seeing is that the gospel literally should change everything about the day-to-day -day reality of our life. And why is that true? Why does the gospel change the kind of husband I am or the kind of wife that you are, or the kind of dad or mom or the kind of son or daughter or the kind of worker or boss? Because the gospel changes your heart. And when the gospel changes a heart, the fruit of that gets, gets lived out in any context in which we live. And today, as we close our time together, we get to celebrate with some folks whose hearts have been transformed by the gospel. And the way we celebrate that is through this beautiful thing called baptism.